This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hey, good morning, Trinity. Um, so, um, I'm not Jeff Heiser, so there's that. Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Nothing says uh, Christmas like Bruce Willis's Die Hard and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay, I'm joking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but definitely Bruce Willis's Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Let's just be clear on that. But I needed something to say to tell you why I want to talk about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They write this song called Under the Bridge. Have you guys ever noticed that artists um, who have really suffered or are addicted or have lived kind of hard lives, they write really good music. You know, hard things make for good poetry. Uh, you can tell a lot of person about their, by their music. So Anthony Kiedis, the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he writes a song called Under the Bridge, and uh, he begins the song this way. He says, sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels, lonely as I am, together we cry. Some of y'all are singing that, right? Y'all know? <laughs> that song is a lament about his really complex relationship uh, that he has with the city, right? And the city and the people are the same. Let me just say that the Old Testament was doing that long before the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the Old Testament, there's this really beautiful song that is born out of this intense pain. Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, he writes a song about all the people who are like violently taken out of their city and exiled uh, and taken from their home. It's the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations, if you haven't read it in a while, it begins with these words. It's kind of uh, under the bridge, it's kind of echo. It says this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. There is no comfort now, I begin this way because uh, we're going to read and study Isaiah 40, and that is the context into which Isaiah 40 is given. See, Isaiah 40 was written to a people who would be yanked from their homes, from their city, and there is no comfort. You guys, y'all remember that movie, Red Dawn? I'm not talking about the new version, but the one from the 80s, right? So if you haven't, it imagines like this world where like communist Russia invades the United States successfully and, and begins to put people in prison camps. But there were like these few kids who didn't get put in the camps and they kind of saved the day. That would kind of be like what happened in Isaiah 40. It would be like that, but for us. So imagine like we're overrun by Russia, right? And then we're all kind of yanked from our homes, our cities, and we're relocated down south like in Mexico or something or like in Venezuela. And, and, and there you are living this new life it's lonely and painful and oppressive and strange. And then like a prophet's message is uncovered, right? I mean, would you even be able to believe it? The darkness and the depression, that life that you're living, that that could change? 
Instead of your song, There Is No Comfort, it would begin like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What would that be like? What would that be like? And what would it take to truly be comforted? So today, we're going to study Isaiah 40. But let me just say, we're in 40, but there have been 39 chapters that have already gone, and it is all pretty negative. Something changes. And, and let me just say real quick, when a prophet speaks, like, you can't listen to him like you jokers listen to me, right? Y'all are like, maybe I like Pastor Ronnie's message or not, take it or leave it, whatever. No, no, no. That's not how it works with the prophets, right? When he speaks, he is a spokesman for God. See, the prophets were the people in Israel who were kind of outside of the system so that when the priests and the kings didn't do what they were supposed to do, the prophets provided accountability, right? They were these covenant enforcers. See, God had said, he says, hey, listen, you must keep your covenant with me. You've got to do your part. And if you don't, you are going to be exiled. But like an addict, you guys, like an absolute addict, Israel ran after other lovers, and they blew off God, and exile would come. But Isaiah writes a letter to those people who would find themselves in captivity, and that switch happens in chapter 40. One pastor, in fact, it's uh, Jeff, who Jeff's going to be working for here soon, he describes Isaiah 40 like an intervention. Y'all know what an intervention is, right? It's like this coordinated event of family and friends who go and have this meeting with uh, a loved one who perhaps is having a hard time making poor decisions, self-destructive, maybe in strong addiction. And they really want their friend to kind of snap out of it, right? So what they do is they all get together and the addict, the friend, doesn't know it's going to happen. But when he walks into a room, he is like welcomed by all of these people that he loves. And the intervention starts like this. Every single person in the room looks the addict in the eye and says, I love you. I'm for you. I believe in you. I'm not giving up on you. And the idea is that, that, that all of that love and affirmation would be louder than the noise of his addiction and that it would give the addict, the self-destructive one, hope and comfort for a better day. That's what Isaiah 40 is. It's a promise of renewed comfort. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't it feel like, uh, like 2020 has just taken so much from us? I mean, it's dragged us away from the life that we want. It's the pandemic. It's the polarization of our country. It's the lack of sympathy and empathy that we have for one another. It's marriages that are really in the instapot and they just might not make it. And uh, listen, some people that we really love, you guys, that we really respect, some people died in 2020. And some of these marriages, they didn't make it. And, and is that how the story ends? I mean, is that how the story ends? Or, or is there comfort? It feels dark. It's because it is. 
But that was Israel's experience too. And so Isaiah writes these words that have been like this balm of comfort of generation after generation, century after century. And so this morning, we are going to explore this renewed comfort together. Now, let me just say real quick, if you're listening in online or if you're here and you're just exploring Christianity, you're just like, I don't know why I'm here exactly. It's Christmas. I'm just listening in. Um, I just want to say thank you for coming I want you to listen in how or why, try to understand why Christians would take these ancient, ancient and sacred and true words from thousands of years ago written to people who are very different than us and say, oh, those words, we have to pour over them because they are so relevant for modern people. They're relevant for people in San Juan in a pandemic or having a hard time. So I'm really glad that we're... And so that you're here. And so we're going to listen uh, in on this conversation on comfort. And we're going to see three things as we study it. For you note takers, we're going to look at the basis of comfort. And that is verses three, three through five. We're going to look at the source of comfort. That's verses six through eight. And then we're going to look at our response to comfort, verses nine through 11. So that's going to be our outline as we study. So as we study, make sure that you keep your bulletin or your Bible's open because we're going to really interact with the text. So would you stand with me in reverence to God's word? And uh, we are going to um, read beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. Hear now the very words of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And I say, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. May he bless it for us. Amen. You may be seated. So when I met Amanda, she was still in the university, and I had just graduated. Uh, The Air Force had stationed me into her hometown, and so we began dating, but it wasn't long after uh, the Air Force sent me to Little Rock, Arkansas. 
and uh, she was still out in West Texas. Um, so from where she was to where I lived was about a 10-hour drive. And uh, back in those days, if you wanted to make that drive, you uh, got on your dial-up internet and you went to MapQuest and you printed out a map for your trip. Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. That was a thing. Um, there's no iPhones. Or the other way is you would drive, and as soon as you crossed the border, the state border, you stopped at the very first service station and you bought a map, right, to navigate. That's how you did it. So um, Amanda and a few of her girlfriends wanted to visit me on their spring break, and so they make that long drive. And uh, somewhere past the border in rural Arkansas, it started to rain, and their car hydroplaned, lost control, they wrecked it, and they totaled the car. Now, I, uh, they find themselves wet, lost, and really shaken up, really scared. So I get a phone call really late at night. You don't want to get that phone call late at night. I did. Amanda's on the phone. She's really upset. She doesn't know what to do. And I say, Amanda, I'm coming for you. And I did. I am coming for you. So Amanda describes to me the relief and the happiness and those very simple words, I am coming for you. There's an affection and a relief and a comfort, right, that Amanda felt. We've all felt the relief and comfort when someone said those words, I'm coming for you, right? That's the experience of the listeners of Isaiah 40. That's what I want you to hear. God is coming for you to take you home. Affection, relief, comfort. See, the picture that we have in verses 3 through 5 is the presence of God coming to his people who are in the wilderness. And you guys know wilderness is this metaphor for really hard times, for trying times. But this is what we get. Look at verse 5. It says, The glory of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, shall be revealed. What? How? It says, And all flesh shall see it together. What? How? Like, you can't even look upon God. Like, it'll incinerate you. How is this going to happen? And yet, God's coming to the rescue. And when he comes, he doesn't need MapQuest. He doesn't need directions. He doesn't need to know any shortcuts. He doesn't need to know the secret passageway around the mountains. Why? Because this terrain is going to turn into a super highway running right in through the middle of the desert. Look there at verse 4. Every valley is going to be lifted up and every mountain made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain. In other words, like the tectonic plates are, are shifting to make way for this rescuer. Hey, listen, that description of the terrain, that's not about rocks and rivers and mountains. That's about your heart. Oh, you know why I know that? Uh, if you were to organize the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament in, um, in the order that they were written, so Mark is the very first, it's the oldest Gospel, and um, so if you were to organize it that way, the very first words of your New Testament would begin in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, right? This is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a good start. And then it says, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's just quoting verse 3 of Isaiah 40. Y'all see that? In other words, according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. And John the Baptist is announcing that God is coming to rescue us, prepare the way, make your hearts right. And so the comfort that we are intended to experience in Isaiah 40 is actually tied to the description of this terrain. The mountains of arrogance, the exalted must be flattened. And the valleys of crushed spirits, those will be lifted up. And the arrogant and the crushed are made to fit the arrival of this rescuer. Which one are you? Which one are you, or maybe both? Do you, um, do you hate yourself? <laughs> I mean, I'm saying that real tenderly, but do you, are you really hard on yourself, or are there moments in your past that replay over your mind, this kind of toxic regret that you just can't get over? You just wish you could, you just live in the past because it's so, it weighs down heavy on you with the regret Or are you overly impressed with yourself? Are you so self-reliant? In fact, you find it hard to pray because why pray when you can just do it yourself? Is that you? The gospel of Jesus Christ says you can't be impressed with yourself. You can't be arrogant. Your situation is so bad and so dark that Jesus had to send his son into the world and hang on a cross because of you. But at the same time, it also says you can't hate yourself and you can't live in that regret. It's paid for. You can't suffocate with it, it, with regret because God says you're so valuable. You're so desired that he was glad to send his son to you to die for you. Which one are you? Which one are you? The gospel speaks to both, doesn't it? You will begin to experience a renewed comfort this season when your deserty heart becomes a superhighway for the rescuer. That's what we're announcing for Jesus. So God's rescue is the basis of our comfort. But what's its source? Now, this is the second point. What's its source? Now, like a good Reformed pastor, you know, I have to uh, get my quota of Lord of the Rings quotes and stories here, (laughs) Tolkien. Uh, If you don't know the Lord of the Rings, it's just this fantasy set in this fictional reality of Middle Earth. Uh, in, its, in its mythology, there is this ring that was created, and it's so powerful that whoever has this ring can destroy and overpower everyone else, right? And so this ring needs to be destroyed. So in the first movie or the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this scene towards the very end where like the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits and the humans are, are all sitting around a circle for a meeting. And sitting on a stump in between all of them is this ring. It's just sitting there. 
And uh, one of the characters is explaining that it needs to be destroyed. And this very capricious dwarf says, that's it? All right, all right, just destroy it. So he takes his axe and tries to hit it, and it reverberates. He lands on his back, and everyone kind of knew that was going to happen. So one of the elves, perhaps too casually, clarifies that the ring has to be thrown into the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor, where the, where the ring was created. And... Um, Again, there's this little silence, and like, oh, okay, that's what, just throw it in there. Sounds easy enough. I mean, what are we waiting for? And one of the humans, Boromir, he, he says with disgust, and there's so many memes made after this line, but he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor, right? Like, like, like you might as well have just said, all you have to do, everyone, is swim across the Pacific with the snorkel. Right? I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, that kind of incredulity would have been present in the hearts of the captives of these exiles. Like these Israeli exiles are in hostage, are, are hostage in Babylon, which is like the most powerful empire in the known world. I mean, great. God's going to liberate us. Cool. He's coming to rescue us. Awesome. But this is not going to go down without a fight. I mean, a lot of people are going to die. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to get slayed like bugs on a windshield, right? That's, that's, that's what they're, they're thinking. See, these exiles, they're weak. They are not in a position of strength. They can't help their own cause, you see. And God knows this. And so the source of comfort is not in our ability to free ourselves, or in our own strength. And God totally knows this. And this is why he says, verse 6, look, he says, cry. Sure, well, what shall I cry? I mean, what do I say? This is what you say. When everyone's listening, this is what you say. Verse 6b, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. That's what you want me to say? Like, I didn't think it was going to go down like this. Like, are you sure that's what we're supposed to say? Bad news. We're all grass. Good news. The Babylonians, they're grass too. Therefore, all of humanity is under the authority, voice, word, will of God. And here's the thing, you guys. If the burden of rescue is on us, we should be cynical. But the message here is not be strong, power through it, let your positivity just carry you through. That's not the message. The message is, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. It does, but the word of God will stand forever. His word, his promises, his strength, he is the liberator. The source of comfort is not in our strength. It's not even in our own faith. It's in the object of our faith, right? It's in God's word. It's in the incarnate word, the rescuer. That's why we repeat that one verse every time because we want you to know who the hero is. Comfort, comfort, my people. It's not about you. It's about God. And let me just add to this. The comfort that God is offering you 
has to be more than God fixing your present discomfort. See, if God's rescue could only be understood in terms of dealing with the Babylonians, then we are all in really big trouble. And you know why? Because after the Babylonians are the Persians. And then after the Persians end up teaming up with the Medes and make this incredible empire. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, Alexander the Great comes through, slices through the Persian empire like a hot knife on butter. Most powerful army the world had ever seen until there was Rome. And then Rome made Greece look like nothing. And by the time that Jesus Christ is born, Israel still sees themselves in captivity. See, listen, there is always another empire, you see. There is always another bad day, which means if it's just about freeing the present discomfort, then their comfort is really fragile, temporary. But please listen. God is offering something far deeper. And we really, Trinity, we have to pay attention to this because every self-help book is pumping into you this idea that all we need is ourselves and self-determination. And now listen, I am all for determination and grit. These are virtues I try to teach my own children. But if we primarily understand ourselves as self-rescuers, then we will either be arrogant with superiority complexes the size of Nazi Germany, or we will just be outright tired and cynical about our life because it is a world that is relentless with sad days. The source of comfort that we need must not actually come from this world itself. It has to be anchored in an eternal reality. And that's how come Isaiah actually begins this whole passage by telling the exiles, look at verse 2, that her iniquity is pardoned. Not, not just forgiven, but that word in the Hebrew means like atoned for, like it's dealt with, right? Not just covered up. That she has received the, from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. In other words, God is saying your comfort and your rescue is deeper than you and I even understand. I'm coming for you. Don't you see? However great your sins are, and I know they're dark, no matter what you did to get into exile, whatever the extent of your iniquity, that is such a heavy, sacred word. However heavy your iniquity, there is double grace to cover it. It's not even close. You know, this reminds me of that story, you know, in the Gospel of Mark. Like, there's these four friends who had this friend who was a paralytic, couldn't walk, and they really loved his friend, and they knew they could just get their friend to Jesus. Jesus could do something about it. This rabbi was not your ordinary rabbi. He could heal people. But Jesus has this huge crowd, so what do these jokers do? They, like, literally hike up on top of a house. They poke a hole. They create a hole in someone's house. They create a pulley system, lower their friend in front of Jesus as they did it. This paralytic is now in the presence of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your iniquity is pardoned. 
Oh, but what about the legs? Your sin is forgiven. <laughs> Isn't that something? In, in other words, he, he's going to later say, get up and walk. But, but what Jesus understands and what, what you and I must get right is that if that man's comfort in the, his life is connected to his legs, then, then if a horse wagon blows out his ACL, then he's back into exile in no time at all. But Jesus wants something deeper for him, and he wants something deeper for you. I am afraid that the source of our comfort is tied either to ourselves or to something in this world. And this Advent message is all an affront to this Christmas says something or someone outside of our world stepped into the world to rescue us and to bring us into the presence of God himself. And Merry Christmas. Is, is that how you see Christmas? Is that the story you tell at Christmas time? That, that we're all like grass, but God... Ha- came into the world to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Because if you don't understand this, if you don't understand this, 1,000 presents under your Christmas tree will only make you sick to your stomach. Enough will never be enough because you're looking to be rescued and nothing is working. And if the weight of burden of being rescued rests on your shoulders, then you're in trouble. Because when you look inwards with that lens, you see weakness and it makes you sick. But God's promises, they stand forever. Like, what if you believed that? What if you believed that? All right, so far we looked at the basis and the source of comfort. Let me conclude with our last point, and it's our response to comfort as people who truly know what it's like to be deeply comforted. So when I was young, uh, each summer, uh, we would get into this old Ford conversion van. Do you guys remember? These things are really tacky. And uh, we, my family would drive to Monterey, Mexico to, to visit my grandparents. Uh, so from Houston to Monterey is quite a drive, and so what we would do is create these pallets in the back and lay down, like no seat belts. Don't judge me. It was the 80s, okay? And, uh, and uh, we would, like, sleep. We'd get out at the border, go through the customs, get back into the conversion van, and sleep again. Now, the way that we could tell that we were getting close to our grandparents' house is that these gorgeous mountains would begin to appear on the, sky, on the horizon. So Monterey is actually at 1,800 feet elevation, and it's nestled up against these gorgeous mountains. So as soon as one of the kids spotted the mountains, because of his excitement, right, he would just start waking up the rest, right? The kid who was excited just couldn't keep the excitement to himself, so he had to get everyone involved, right? That's kind of what we're seeing here. There is this contagious comfort. In the same way there's a contagious excitement, there is this contagious comfort. Throughout this entire passage, that is what you're seeing, a sharing of comfort. It starts in verse 2, speak tenderly, comfort to Jerusalem. Now, let me just say this real quick. That's a weird thing to say, to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon, right? So 
back to Red Dawn, if you're in Russia or if you're in Venezuela or Mexico in exile, it, 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 and while you're there, they looked, he looked at you and says, hey, speak tenderly to San Juan, right? Verse 2, cry to her. A voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says cry. And then verse 9, you see this repeating of this crying? Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, O San Juan, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, say to the cities of Puerto Rico, behold, behold, your God And here's the point. The comforted become the comforters, the heralds of comfort. It is the rescued who then become the non-anxious presence in the city of anxiety, depression, and grumpiness. And then what the prophet says, the description is unfathomable. After he says, behold your God, Isaiah describes God, and he does it in two ways. Verse 10, it says, look there, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. So that is a picture of this like mighty God whose armies are matchless. He comes even with like the spoils of war. Oh, Trinity, we need a God who is mighty with matchless armies, don't we? I mean, we need a God who can both see the brokenness of our world but that can do something about it. He's not just a sympathetic counselor. He actually has the authority to fix it. We need a strong, strong God. In fact, that's what the Jews were waiting for in the time of Jesus. But we have the second image, don't we? Look there at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom. This is a God who's tender. He lays down his life for his sheep. He gathers them. He, he warms them with his arms. This is, what God, this is what God, their rescuer, will look like, a warrior shepherd. God of incomprehensible might, power, and mercy. This is the rescuer they're waiting on, merciful, meek, powerful, warrior king. Now, when Jesus arrives, born in a manger, not in a palace, it's humble. He identified with the the shepherds and the outcasts of society. He loved on lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes, all the invisibles of society. He's totally into them. The only crown this king ever wore was a, a, a crown of thorns that they laid on his head and He hung on a really shameful, humiliating cross. Now, when I hear the description of this first advent, I see, right, when I I look back at at Bethlehem, I see Jesus as a shepherd. But where, where is the warrior shepherd, though? Where's the warrior shepherd? Well, back to my illustration about Monterey. So we would see these, uh, the mountain range, right, as we're approaching Monterey. And when you look at him as you're driving up, it looks like all the mountains are like, right next to each other. But when you actually drive up to the mountains, you realize they're not close to each other at all. In fact, there are these massive, endless valleys in between these mountains. They're extremely far from each other. Well, in the same way, from the perspective of Isaiah driving up towards the mountains, towards the advents, 
he sees these two descriptions of God, and he kind of mashes them together, doesn't he? But the shepherd king is the first advent. But the moment that you and I live in, not Israel, but us, we're in the valley, aren't we? We're between the two advents. We're between the two mountains, aren't we? The rescuer will come, and he will come as a warrior, kingly shepherd. That's the second advent that this points to. This is good news. You pick up the phone. God says, I'm coming for you. He's coming to get us, and we are heralds of this truth. And every Sunday, we sit in these chairs. Why? Why do we do this, you guys? Like, it's because you and I, we live in a deserty valley. <laughs> we live in the deserty valley between the two mountains, between these two advents, and life is really hard in the valley. And the magic of Christmas, however beautiful the trees are, is not enough to get us through. And most of the people that we really care about can't understand why their soul just can't shake off this cloud of futility and anxiety and depression or really just an aimlessness that haunts them. I mean, what is this life for? What are we all doing here, you guys? What are we even doing? I'm listening to this podcast that discusses all the techies in the Silicon Valley. They're like the, the puppet masters of the tech world, and they have this incredible, robust faith that, that the world-changing, world-saving power of technology is at their fingertips. Incredible faith. They believe, these puppet masters, they believe that there is a clever solution, a hack, for every new problem. Just a life hack. Hacks are great. My kids watch this thing on YouTube, right? It's kids, guys just doing really cool stuff. I'm all for hacks. But listen, there is no hack for sin and death, is there? You either live in captivity or you are rescued. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to become one of us, to rescue us. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Every week, we look around here, and just like heralds, we say to one another, he's come, he's coming. That's what we do, right? That's what we're doing every single Sunday. That's all we're doing. Now, listen, I understand that this represents a very small fraction of your week. We, this is one hour. Most of your life is not here. I get that. Most of your life is somewhere else. But if you neglect this one hour of week where we're doing this, you will become a shell of the person that you were before. Why? Because we have to remind each other, because we're always looking for comfort from lovers who do not stick around. So I suppose that image of the intervention for an addict is pretty appropriate for us, isn't it? We need a room full of people looking at us saying, I love you. I'm for you. I'm never giving up on you. I believe in you. And we need to hear that until that message drowns out our hopelessness.
till we start believing that. Most of all, you need to understand that your heavenly father grabs you by the cheeks and he says, you are mine. The shepherd king has come to bring you in and to save you and the warrior shepherd will come one day to complete your joy. Merry Christmas.